myself a bit because uh, it's not going to get cooler, I don't think. Definitely not with this text. So please turn to Jude, verse 3 and verse 4 of the letter of Jude to the church. It's a general letter because it was written and circulated among all the churches, unlike uh, Ephesians, which was originally written to a specific church and, of course, has general application. It's the word of God. But Jude wrote in a general way because uh, he noticed, obviously, by God's moving that there was... Uh, something happening in the church. It's something that has not ceased to happen to this day. In fact, if it happened then, you can know it happens now because in those days the apostles were actually living and moving among the churches. So if there was a call to contend for the faith because of of error that had come in, uh, then certainly we can see that it is still the case today. This is an ongoing command for us to contend for the faith. Verse 3 and verse 4 form the thesis or the crux of Jude's letter. So hear now God's word, Jude, Jude, verse 3 and verse 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, these are heavy words that come from the pen of Jude. I pray, O Lord, that we would take them to heart as a church, that we would recognize the reality, the call to contend for the faith, even in our day. Lord, help us individually as erroneous thoughts creep into our minds, and corporately as error seeks to creep in to your church. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sherry and I were married at the ripe old ages of 21 and 20, respectively, and even neither of us had lived very far from home. I spent four years in the dorm in Chicago. She spent two years in the dorm, and then she moved back to Kansas before we were going to get married, and I'd only been to Kansas twice that I can remember. There may have been a third time, but it, was, it left such an impression on me that I can't remember it. Uh, at any rate, we went back, and I had thought, well, I'll go and work for two years while she finishes her undergraduate degree at Wichita State. So she, at a distance, had to get the apartment for us. So I'd call her from New York and say, get a cheap one. You know, I don't have a job, and I've got to find a job. So get a cheap one because i got 500 bucks, and it's got to last us for a while. So she went around looking for apartments. Again, neither of us ever looked at an apartment to buy. Uh, we lived in our parents' homes our whole life. So she found two. She called me up, and I told her to keep it under 300 bucks. So it's got to be under $300. I mean, Wichita, how bad can Wichita be, right? So she calls me and says, there's one for $295 a month, and there's one for $265 a month. The one for $295, and then she starts going into how much she likes it. I said, after she got done, I said, get the one for $265. So she did. It was totally and utterly, and I say before you, my fault, $265 a month. So I moved in in early July. We weren't going to be married to the 31st, so I was there for the whole month by myself. And I remember sitting. We had no furniture, so I was sitting on a, on a lawn chair in the, in the living room. And I remember looking at, that wasn't even meant to be funny. That's the truth. <laughs> so I looked on the wall one time, and I saw something scurrying across the wall. And I thought, well, we have spiders in New York, but not ones big enough to put a saddle on the back of and ride. So I didn't think much of it. Oh, this is Kansas. Maybe it's different in Kansas. Another one scurries somewhere else in the apartment. I see something scurrying. I never could really identify it, and I didn't see anything quite like it, so didn't think much of it. Well, within a week, I remember going out uh, to the kitchen, turning on the lights, and a bunch of stuff scattering over the top of the counter. Uh, I remember uh, 
seeing the cover, opening the cover, and something flipping out and flying and scurrying off. I remember sleeping at night and feeling a tickling on my head as it went off. Then I recall, after we were married, Sherry came in, and I never really made mention of this because I thought it was just something that happened, you know, no big deal. Forgot to even say anything uh, to her about it. Now, if you know my wife's level of cleanliness and what this would do to her to see this kind of activity, I don't know why I thought it would go away or what it is. It got worse. In fact, I will never forget after countless episodes of seeing these roaches go in our VCR and come out of the VCR and run out behind the cabinet, uh, in your clock, in your toaster. I even remember this is the last straw and we moved out. We were only going to live there for two years before I went to seminary. We moved halfway through because we couldn't handle it anymore. Even in the winter months when they're not supposed to be active, these things were having a party. In fact, the reason why it was two sixty-five a month is because the cockroaches paid the other part of the rent. I'm convinced. <laughs> So I'm sitting at my kitchen table. I look out of the corner of my eye, and I see the microwave digital light flickering. Like, flickering? What's the deal? I've never had a, a, the electronics. Usually they, you don't see the digital readout flick, flickering. It wasn't anything on the outside. So I get real close to it, and what do I see but a roach inside the microwave walking across the digital readout. It's time to move. But we first complained to the landlord. He told me, he said, listen, we treated your apartment before you got here. And it's true, for about the first week, I didn't see anything. But we lived as members of a 12-unit building. And you see, with time, unnoticed to me anyways, these things were creeping through the walls. And by the time I had seen them, you could count a 100 for every one you actually saw. And they're creeping throughout the walls of your house, coming out at sockets, coming out at other cracks. You name it, they found their way in. And as soon as you do notice it, it's too late. You've lost and apart from evacuating all the building and boraxing the whole thing, there's no getting away once they have crept in and taken over. The church will have people who creep in. They'll creep in unnoticed. And before you know it, a twist and a change here, a tweak here, an alteration here, and you're no longer even the church. Now, if you don't think it can happen, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. Jude is writing in a time when the apostles lived and walked and moved, and it still happened under their noses. Because Paul warns in the book of Acts, chapter 20, that after I leave, after I plant this church of Ephesus, wolves will come in, and they will twist things, and they will devour and scatter the flock. He forecasts this to happen. In Jude, they're there. They've come. They've crept in, it says. They're already there. Ten years after Paul writes what he writes. Christians, we are told, are to contend for the faith because it will be under constant attack by all sorts of creeps. I know creep's not a technical pastoral term, but we'll see it, what I mean by it in a moment. Let's first consider that we are to contend for the faith in verse 3. What is the faith? Uh, capital T, capital F, the faith. And let's look at verse 3 together. Beloved, so he starts by addressing the church, those who are united to Christ, those who in verse 1 and verse 2 are referred to as those who were called, kept, loved, God's own treasure possession, beloved. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So his first intention was to write a doctrinal treatise of sorts, maybe like Romans or Ephesians, just outlining our common salvation in Jesus. Now, I was going to write that to you, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. In other words, 
What I have to tell you goes to the heart and foundation of the doctrinal treatise I was going to give. I can't talk about our common salvation until I address a threat that's there. I've got to write to you about it. It's short, 25 verses, but it's profound. It's deep. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for, and for all, once for all, delivered to the saints. What we have here in this first verse is really, I would say, the central passage in the whole book. Contend for the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. Now let's consider for a moment what it is uh, that makes up this verse. What is the faith more particularly? Now we can say for sure, and although this verse doesn't say it as such, we know because of the message of Scripture that the faith, capital T, capital F, the noun usage, not the verb, the verb I have faith or I exercise faith, not that usage, the noun usage, the faith, very simply is quantified in Jesus Christ. He is the faith. Jesus, he's central. Uh, we're not talking about every theological uh, uh, quibbling match we can have or every particular we're talking about jesus he is the faith we are to contend for now there's a lot that goes into that there's complexity no doubt but it's jesus he's the central component of the faith he is the one faith can be in its essence equated to jesus the faith contend for christ contend for the faith but look also the verse says once for all delivered this talks about the message of jesus christ and how do we have that message the scriptures so we have Jesus Christ as the faith, the Bible, or that which is delivered to the saints, the Bible as the message of Christ. This is telling us who Christ is, the faith, and then it's given to who? To the saints, the church. Uh, so we can think in these terms. The faith is Christ. Uh, the Bible is the message of Christ from God, and it's delivered to the church. The church receives the message because it's for the church, and it's for the church to then propagate and call more into the church. So the faith, when we say the faith and we talk about contending for the faith, we're talking about Christ, we're talking about the record of Christ, which is the Bible, because if you take that away or mess with it in any way, then you've just altered who Christ is or, or lessened our ability to trust who Christ is. So the scriptures, is that important? The testimony, is that important? And it's given to who? The church for the propagating of that message. So the faith is involved in these three components. They're not equal. Christ is Lord over all of these, but he's manifested through the scriptures, and this message is given to the church. So let's consider these components individually for a moment. We contend for the faith. We're talking about contending for Jesus Christ. First and foremost, we contend for Jesus. We're to, to defend and contend for a correct understanding of Jesus. Nothing, brothers and sisters, please hear me, nothing can be more important than the person of Christ. Nothing can be more important than Jesus. And so we contend vehemently, aggressively for him. What about him? What we learn, that he is God and nothing less. We learn that he has taken on flesh. He is the incarnation. Uh, his earthly presence was perfect. That is, he lived out his life perfectly, obeying the law to the letter. Passively and actively, he obeyed without fault. This is important because he is our, as the scripture tells us, our substitution. He takes on our sin. He's our righteous substitution. So his substitution for us is essential to understanding and contending for Christ. His death and resurrection, his death pays for our sin. His resurrection proves that God is satisfied with that payment and our sins are forgiven as we're united to Christ. Nothing can be more important than contending for Jesus Christ. Nothing. His lordship over all creation, his bodily return, 
the fact that he is our savior, we must and have to contend for these realities. If someone who says they're of the church maybe wears the robe of a minister or has the office of a professor or teaches in the Sunday school and affronts any of these points, they must be contended against. It's not so much a personal thing as that Christ is the faith. In saying that he's not God takes away the faith. Saying that he is not our substitutionary atonement or that it's, it's just a theory takes away from the faith. We are to contend for the faith is what the scripture tells us. You know, from the outside, we can all identify this. Islam is wrong. Why? Because they say Jesus is a good teacher, and that's it. They deny his deity. They deny his lordship, his substitutionary atonement for people. You name it. They're wrong on that basis with who Jesus is. But that's from the outside. You expect that, don't you? Uh, some myths that go on today about uh, suggesting through Da Vinci codes and other possible uh, fictional literature that Jesus did this or did that that falls outside of the scriptural record. Those are wrong accounts of who Jesus is, and they, those views must be contended against, especially when they come into the church. I'm always uh, telling people with regard to being offended about something, I say, don't take it so personally, but as it relates to your Savior, as it relates to the faith, take it personally when something's said about our Savior. There's nothing more important than Jesus. We contend for him and a right understanding of who he is. So obviously he's the faith. Well, how do we know Jesus? What goes hand in hand? How have we had the revelation of Christ? How do we know this Jesus is the Savior, that he is God, that he is, was born of a virgin, was raised again? How do we know this? Listen, our minds are darkened with sin. Our hearts are hard. We could not do any amount of historical research to come up with these facts on our own. For all the historical figures we've ever researched as people, there are this side of the story and that side of the story. You all know that. You saw the, the stories this week about President Reagan. One side says this. Another side says this. A third party. That's why man can't be trusted with the message. God has to give us a message. God has to condescend to communicate to us, and he does it. In sundry times and in diverse manners, he made himself known through the prophets, the apostles, and those sanctioned by the apostles to give us the very word of God. To know who Christ is is based on God telling us who he is, and he tells us in the scriptures. Our confession says it better than any confession that I've ever read about what the importance of the word of God is for us as it relates to Jesus, who we contend for. Hear these words. The confession says, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. In other words, God's care for the earth and his creation alone leaves everyone inexcusable. We all know there's God. Even those who deny God can pick up the leaf of an oak tree and know that there's God. But that alone does not save anyone because Jesus is the faith. Jesus is the one that we must trust. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto the church. And afterwards, for a better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan and of the world, to do what? To commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people now being ceased. It's now been delivered to the saints. And we have God's word here. And there's important 
realities about the Bible that we must understand. And please understand that if we take them away, then we have shook the foundation of who we say Jesus is. It's, it's, it's crucial. And so many voices today say they know Jesus, but when you ask them what Je- who Jesus is, their definition comes from a whole host of things other than the one place we can trust in who Jesus is. The Bible, first of all, it is inspired. The word inspired coming from 2 Timothy 3.16 means God breathed, theopneustis, theopneustis, God breathed. It's like I go to that window and breathe on the window. There would be a residue there. And you could take some of that residue and tell a whole lot about me, maybe even DNA. You could tell the makeup. Not everything there is to know about me, but everything that you would see there would be wholly accurate. It would be from God. It would be his imprint. It would not be messed up by man in some way. He has inspired regular guys to write the scriptures, preserving them to write what it is that he had for them. Not in a mechanical way where they sat there, put their hand down and got... No, he used their personality and providentially worked and superintended moving them along as they wrote scripture. And he kept their personalities intact. Paul is Paul. Peter is Peter. Jude is Jude. Malachi is Malachi. And God, in this process of inspiration, gives us the undefiled word from him. So it's inspired. And if it's inspired, if it's God-breathed, then it's without error. And I'm not talking about the idea that God is making some scientific treatise on whether the sun rises or falls. You've heard those kind of arguments. Those are just clearly what we observe. The sun rises, and the scripture writer just writes it as he sees it, just like the poet does. That's not error. That's just a literary device used. But without error means there's nothing in it that is untrue. There may be things I don't understand, but it's not an error on the Bible's part. The error is on my understanding. It's inspired. It's inerrant. So so what? It's authoritative. If it's from God and without error, then it is the rule of our lives. It's where we check to find out the answers we need for life. It's where we find out who Jesus is. Christ, the Bible. The Bible's inspired. It's inerrant. It's authoritative. And let me just say it clearly. A weak view of the Bible, which seems to be becoming more popular today, to not be completely theologically liberal in our statements, but just that, oh, you know, you can't take everything literally. You can't take that kind of talk. That kind of talk leads to a weak view of the Savior who saves us. There's no divorcing this. You can't have a weak view of Scripture and have a high view of Christ. It's impossible. It's illogical. It doesn't work. And eventually, mark my words, eventually, a weak view of the Bible will lead to a weak view of Christ. It will. Ten years, twenty years, fifty years, whatever, it will. So Christ, the Bible, and who it is given to, finally, the church, make up what we refer to as the faith. Uh, Not in equal terms, Christ is Lord of these things, but who has the Bible been given to? It has been given to to the church, once for all delivered to the saints, hagioi, not talking about saints that man says you're saint so-and-so or you're saint, that is a man-made device. Saints, holy ones, mean those who are set apart by God as saved individuals. You are all saints who trust in the Lord Jesus. So it's given to the church, the revelation of Christ. And we've been given so much as a church. Think about what the church institutionally has been given. We've been given the Holy Spirit individually indwelling in you and then upon the church. And we've been given God's special revelation by the Holy Spirit, the Bible. We've been given people who are gifted in teaching and preaching from the Bible. You as individual believers have been given the ability to explain it to your children by the Holy Spirit's ministry. You've, been, you've not been left to your natural mind. You've been given the scriptures and the Holy Spirit. 
These are gifts given to the church in conjunction with his revealed word. We've been given the sacraments and prayer we learn from the Bible. These are all means of grace that God uses to build up his beloved in him. Jesus Christ, the scriptures that declare Jesus Christ, and the church to whom the message was written. This is the faith that we are to contend for. Who do we contend against? Who do we contend against? I will call them creeps because that's what the Bible calls them. Now, if you were engineering, I would call you an engineer. If you were practicing law, I would call you a lawyer. If you were mothering your children, I'd call you a mother. If you were doctoring on people, I'd call you a doctor. That's probably not a technical term. But if you were creeping in with the purpose to pervert and deny, you're a creep. That's what it says. Look at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me make this preface so that we don't fall into sinful judgmentalism. What, what has to be understood, not, it's not everybody that we have a theological disagreement with. That doesn't make you a creep or an apostate, which is a more technical term for what's being spoken of here. It's, we may disagree, and maybe I say something erroneous. If I'm confronted with it and, and change that teaching, that does not qualify someone as apostate. We're talking about people who've been de designated by virtue of their character, uh, by virtue of the conduct and their creed, what they believe, as, as people who are, their purpose is to, sub, to, to come underneath the church's teaching and turn people away from the Savior, the faith. And there are people specially designated for this, according to the text in verse 4. Many theologians have characterized three different aspects or components that help you identify those who are what we would say creeps. First of all, their character. Look at the verse, the beginning of verse 4. They crept in unnoticed, designated for this condemnation, ungodly. So their character uh, fuels how they act, and they're creeping or they're sneaking or they're worming in unnoticed, uh, purposely trying to be undetected is what is connotated here designated for this condemnation ungodly what we have here is the biblical fact of reprobation I still have not heard a sermon and I've not preached a whole one on reprobation it's a big word let me explain what it means we know we know that scripture identifies that God chooses people for salvation but we also have to agree that in choosing some for salvation in essence he's choosing others for condemnation and I know that doesn't feel well, and I know people argue against that. In fact, that's one thing they'll say, I can't buy you Calvinist or you Reformed people saying that because that's unfair. And I will agree, to human ears it sounds harsh when you talk about reprobation. But brothers and sisters, the clear fact of the matter is it's actually spoken of more than election. Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Do I understand that? Can I totally reconcile? No, but I'm not God. 1 Peter 2.7-9 talking about the stumbling block that Jesus is to, the, to, to those who don't believe. Listen to what it says. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. And the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to, Peter writes. Romans says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath 
and to make known his power, has endured with such patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So these creeps are really living out who they are as fallen dead people who are designated for, for condemnation and will seek to destroy the faith, just living out what any one of us would live out had we not been called to God. Bettner, who writes a classic book on predestination, there hasn't been a book better on the subject that I have found. He voices his personal frustration with those who oppose this doctrine. Now, no one's saying that we're all comfortable with it, don't get me wrong. But opposing it, that's another thing when it's such a clearly, uh, so clearly taught in Scripture. Listen to what he says. Although the doctrine is harsh, it is nevertheless scriptural. And since it is so plainly taught in Scripture, we can assign no reason for the opposition which it has met other than pure ignorance and unreasoned prejudice with which men's minds have been filled when they come to study it. The church has been corrupted and cursed in almost every age by the undue confidence of men in their reasoning powers. Finally, he says, the condemnation of the non-elect is designed primarily to furnish an eternal exhibition before men and angels of God's hatred for sin, or in other words, it is to be an eternal manifestation of the justice of God, one of the divine attributes which, apart from it, could never have been adequately appreciated. So the character of the enemy of the faith, or the creep, as we're saying, is based on his or her lack of spiritual life. Their character is fallen. Their character drives them. You may not see it on the outset because they're, they creep in unnoticed, but we have to understand what fuels them is their very character. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. You know, we have an ordination process in our, in our church, and Mike Hirschberger's has gone through that process. It's, it's an involved doctrinal study. It starts with seminary, and then it goes into a, 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 a doctrinal examination process that's extensive. Then a personal holiness uh, uh, examination that's extensive. It's a great system, I believe. But brothers and sisters, if a man wants to lie, he can lie. If a man wants to say what the ordaining people want to hear, he can say it. They can still creep in. They still do creep in. None of us should ever lower our guards to the point where we think that it won't happen again. We shouldn't be paranoid, but at the same time understand that the very heart of this kind of a person seeks to be dishonest. If you've ever heard R.C. Sproul talk about his roommate in college or in seminary, he was about ready to be ordained, and his roommate said, should I go with the resurrection or not? And Sproul said, what do you mean? He said, if you don't believe it, you've got to say it. And he went, and he said he didn't believe it, and they still ordained him. That's the state of the church he was in at that time. But he could have just as easily said, I believed it. And any number of other denominations would have taken him based on his theological knowledge and what he said. And once he was in, start undercutting those teachings. Start making people think, maybe it's not so true. Yeah, it's a theory. Creeping in. Their character is revealed. But their conduct is spelled out for us as well. What do they do? They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Now, we think of the perverting of grace as usually meaning legalism. That is, uh, we don't believe in God's forgiveness for us, and we set up rules that we are to follow to make us more holy, as if Jesus' work on the cross wasn't whole, and that we still have to do things to earn. That's a, that's a, a common way in which we pervert grace. But that's not what's being spoken of here. Look closely. Pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Now, sensuality is a, a word that means a whole host of things. We think of sexual experience as part of it, but it also, anything you can experience with the five senses, it could be eating, it could be uh, going after worldly, uh, after wealth. Uh, you name the thing that we experience with our senses, 
that we could turn into a license to make those things idols. And the one who perverts the grace of God and turns it into sensuality says that these things that are part of our sensuality are okay uh, and without limits from God, and that if you do mess up in these areas, don't worry, we're covered. God loves us. In fact, one of the discussions you hear the most, especially recently, in the church about the, the issue of homosexuality, for instance. And you can, you can fill in the blank whatever your particular sin is. Uh, but in that one, it's interesting to hear church leaders speak because instead of outlining what everyone needs to hear is, is the biblical directives forbidding that kind of activity, uh, instead of saying that, they'll just say, you know, I'm not sure what it says, but we'll love you because God loves us. Of course, God can love, love all manner of sinners. I'm glad he does or he wouldn't love me. So it's not, it's not going to a personal attack on any one person. But it's a statement that's saying that God is willing to overlook that which he says is sin just because he's so gracious, just because he's so loving, because he has no justice in him is what he's really saying. And this is happening in all, all over the place in the church. And this is creeping in, turning the grace of our God into a license for sin. Paul confronts this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue on sinning that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says. How can we who died in, in, uh, died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might, too, walk in newness of life. That's their conduct. What is their creed? What do they believe? Because this, what you believe, brothers and sisters, ideas have consequences. They live out, they come out, and they ooze out of your life. What do they believe? The text says they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Aha! That's it. If Jesus is everything, as we said, those who deny Jesus, we already know. And, and it doesn't mean they're going to stand up and say, I deny Jesus. Of course they're not going to do that in any ecclesiastical circle. But by their teaching, by their words, by what they say, they're denying who Jesus really is. There's two ways it happens. One way is this benign uh, kind of uh, mainline-ish Christianity that always talks about God as this benevolent grandfather figure, never speaks much of Jesus, only to refer to the figurative revelation or uh, resurrection that they barely believe in. In fact, if you watch the service for the president, while I have no doubt about the president's personal faith based on things I've read and say and heard, uh, the service itself was utterly devoid of reference to Jesus Christ. I heard Lord once. I heard the current president say Savior once. And I heard the pastor who did the, ser uh, the sermon refer to the resurrection. But why not the word Jesus? Why not say Jesus? Why not Jesus Christ? If he's the faith, if he's the one that is Mr. Reagan's assurance, why not hear that over and over again? Because I would submit to you that's what's happened. That kind of creeping theology comes in. It's almost a shame to talk about who Jesus really is. Either ashamed or don't believe it. That's one side of it. Then there's another side of it that's even more common today, and it's amazing to me, but people that are dressed in robes, that have degrees from seminaries, that are elders in churches, Sunday school teachers, they are able to say and do Jesus talk. They do talk about Jesus. And on the onset, you would think they're talking about the Jesus of the Bible. But as you probe, you realize that their position on the Bible is so weak that who they're, they're conjuring up as Jesus is no different than a little child taking Mr. Potato Head and putting the pieces together the way he wants them to look. That's very common today, very common today. Creeps have crept in and have perverted who our Lord and Savior is, denied our Master and Lord. That is their creed. They're living it out, and it shows. Brothers and sisters, it's a, it's a serious issue that's not just unique to our day. It has happened over and over again, and we should not think that it cannot happen 
Again, accountability is important. How do we confront this? I think the accountability that we have, at least in, on paper, in a, in a Presbyterian church, I'm not sure how it is in other places, is very good at holding these things accountable. I'm pretty confident that you, the congregation, would hold me accountable if I started teaching heresy or, or theological error. I promise you the elders would, and I know the presbytery would. But the fact is there have been churches like us before that had the same structure, and creep still crept in and still affected. In fact, I close with this kind of depressing story. I hate to do this to you, but it's this serious. Uh, we're heading into our General Assembly as a, in the Presbyterian Church in America. I leave tomorrow for Pittsburgh. Uh, it conjures up the history from, what, from whence we have come to illustrate this fact, this fact of creeps creeping in. The American Presbyterian Church, this is not just because I'm Presbyterian, was the spiritual and theological backbone of this country in the 1750s all the way through really almost to 1900. A lot of the penners of the original uh, uh, founding papers of our country were Presbyterians. Uh, the theology was rich. And really, if you would, just to be honest, in 2,000 years of church history, I think very little that American theologians have contributed will ever be remembered, except for this 150-year period between 1750 and 1900, and maybe a little bit after it. This period produced some of the richest, uh, most profound theological and doctrinal literature of any age, of any age. It started in the mid-1700s with Jonathan Edwards, who was a Presbyterian minister who started uh, through just preaching the word of God in, in a uh, less than glamorous way, started preaching and people were coming to Christ. There was what's called the first great awakening. And it was a phenomenal time to be alive when you look at what was happening across the country. And towards the end of his life, they gave him kind of a figurehead position. It was only for a year to be, start a co to be the president of a new college that started called the College of New Jersey. And it was emblematic of what this school would represent. Jonathan Edwards, deep and in, in profound theology. I think the clearest American theologian uh, thinker that we've ever seen. And he would be the guy who would be the founding president of the College of New Jersey. You know what that college is now? It's Princeton Seminary. Now, I say this. It, it really, literally, it's hard for me to talk about it. I was depressed for two days reading this. Princeton Seminary started, and prior to 1929, Princeton Seminary was the standard of orthodoxy, not just in this country, but the world. People came from all over to hear the faith. And you know what? The Reformed faith and the faith were of one at that time. That's how it was referred to. It wasn't just these Calvinists. It was the faith that they talked about. Who saves? How he saves? God's grace. Jonathan Edwards starts. Charles Hodge, who wrote a, a systematic that still none have surpassed. Uh, William Henry Green, Francis Patton, B.B. Warfield, Gerhardus Voss. So you have the Dutch theologians mixing with American Presbyterians. You can't get a better mixture of biblical wisdom and understanding. Robert Dick Wilson, J. Gresham Machen, A.A. Hodge, Cornelius Van Til. I know a lot of these names don't mean something to you. They need to because these are the founding fathers of even American faith in many respects. And it was at Princeton Seminary, the citadel of the world for orthodoxy. But in the late 1800s, certain people crept in to the larger church that sponsored the seminary. And there started to become teaching that crept in really from Germany first, but then other places where they started undermining the word of God. And of course, of course it trickles. It moves its way upstream towards the doctrine of Christ. And you can't believe it when you think of someone like Machen, someone like Van Til, someone like, uh, like Hodge and the legacy of Hodge and his grandson at the seminary. You can't imagine that these individuals would see this and somehow be moved by it. Well, they weren't. But in 1924, the church that sponsored the seminary, 1,300, 1,300 ministers signed something that said, 
that you don't have to hold to the inspiration of Scripture. You don't have to hold to the virgin birth of Christ. You don't have to hold to the resurrection of Christ, his substitutionary atonement. You, they're just theories, and 1,300 ministers in the Presbyterian Church at that time signed that document. That crept in. A desire to be more accepted across ecumenical lines made the board of the college move to put a president at, at Princeton Seminary that held these views or was quickly moving towards these views. In 1914, Dr. Stevenson started his presidency. It climaxed in 1929 with much of the faculty resigning. Bardian theology that undermined scripture and finally total outright liberal theology by the 1960s. The school that Jonathan Edwards founded or was the figurehead pre first president for. The school that Charles Hodge taught at, that Machen taught at, that Van Til taught at. That school today primarily graduates people who deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Certain men crept in unnoticed, perverted the gospel, perverted grace for sensuality. And now you could be a believer and go into that place, and I promise you, chances are you're going to come out an unbeliever now. That's what happens. That's what the text warns us of. You know, this last image in your mind as we understand the seriousness of contending for the faith. You know, when, if you've ever been bit by a tick, you know they start up your pant leg, they work up your, your, your side, through, through your belt, they'll go up your side, they'll crawl around, you'll never know it. You'll never have an idea. Crawl up the back of your neck, you'll find them two days later dug into your head, sucking your blood and giving you a disease. Creeps come in unnoticed, and when they're noticed, great damage has already been done. Let us contend for the faith, and the faith, brothers and sisters, is Jesus. Let us pray. Father, this is a somber message in one sense, but it is timeless, and it has to be said, it has to be heard. The text is clear, and Lord, I pray that you'd give us personal conviction about wrong thinking. I pray that you would make the accountability structure work that we have. But Lord, we recognize we're human beings. We're sinners. So we need your Holy Spirit to constantly hold before us what is the faith. The faith is our Lord Jesus. You've given us revelation of Christ in your word, us being the church. Help us to contend for it, Lord. By your means of grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to number 370. Verses 1.